Welcome to Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tyler Lalonde, and today we're not going to host one, but we are going to host two outstanding guests, Ben Rush and Jevin Lordy. They are going to tell us about their non-linear path into research. They're also going to further describe their research now, in the past, and where they see it going in the future in terms of using several different technologies, imaging technologies specifically, that help them accelerate their work into the future. Without further ado, let's get into it with Ben Rush and Jen and Lord. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming on tonight. It's going to be great. Um, and we're going to hopefully tell a really cool story tonight to the audience. I want to introduce uh, Ben Rush and Jevin Lordy. I think I'm saying that right, right? Yeah, it you got it. Okay, good, yeah. good. So Jevin is a postdoc at UW-Madison in the Nutritional Sciences Department. He grew up in the Chicago, Illinois area mostly and first got kind of introduced to science through experimenting with cooking and baking. Uh, he's currently researching muscle imaging, the gut microbiome, and heart failure. I'm not going to give too much of the story away. I kind of want to let him tell a little bit about that himself. Uh, and then we have Ben Rush, who's also a scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Ben attended Indiana University Bloomington for his undergraduate and his master's in public health, where he served as a graduate student researcher and statistician. In between that stint of his master's and PhD, Ben served two years with the American Corps uh, as a personal chef, and I'm sure he'll tell us a little bit more about that experience. And then he returned to graduate school to obtain his PhD in nutritional science as well, uh, where he studied how various body composition and bioimaging methods can capture muscle quality with the goal to use those methods in lung cancer uh, and aging interventions. Again, I'm going to kind of give the floor to Ben and Jevin to expand that a little more. So yeah, let's start it off. Hopefully today we're going to see that there's really not a linear path to getting where we need to be uh, in science and research. And I think Ben and Jevin are really going to explain their paths and you're going to see some differences and some similarities in their paths. And hopefully we're still going to learn about uh, their past, their current, and their future work and the technologies they used. And uh, I'll hopefully intervene a little bit about Syntica and technologies we have here at Syntica and how we've really worked to integrate these types of technologies, not just for people like Ben and Jevin, but for people across the globe. So uh, with that, uh, why don't we start up a little bit about Ben, expand on your uh, journey into science and kind of how you came to where you are today. Yeah, I, I think my interest in science probably started back in childhood, just going out into natural areas and being curious about animals, mostly, that lived in rivers or ponds. Also, I had my dinosaur figurines that I played in puddles of mud and may have tried some of the, you know, the puddles of mud <laughs> to see how they tasted. Uh, so I guess that's natural curiosity. And I think that curiosity stuck with me and I started really getting into sciences after a failed attempt of applying to colleges for music composition and instead went to psychology, which led me into neuroscience, which led me into biology. So I, I got both of those undergrad degrees and 
felt I needed to continue, so switched from more molecular-based science to more people-based science with the Masters of Public Health and did epidemiology, did some reproductive health and sexual health research, took a little bit of a break doing AmeriCorps to become a bit more well-rounded person, but felt I needed to come back at some point. Uh, I did my little stints of working at a health department, helping mentor kids, working as a personal chef, but all of that I think was a good experience to help me work with different populations and get a bit more focused. And then taking all that, when I started graduate school, was still thinking about a public health realm, but I was really fascinated by these futuristic technologies like CT scans, like DEXA scans, like MRI scans, ultrasound. It's pretty neat to be able to look inside your body real time versus just like staring at medical health records, although that's what we do now too. So uh, a nice blend of everything and uh, a bit full circle. And I think I'm, you know, still sussing out what's next. Uh, life is always an adventure. I think with that, I'll, I'll pass it to Jevin. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and I've already kind of seen a bit of a similarity. Uh, cooking seems to be, did, it, it's almost like, I, I don't want to say it, but it, you both had that kind of in the background a little. And I think Jevin, you're going to highlight a little bit of that as well. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny, the parallels between uh, my journey and Ben's journey. And it, it's and then we come to work in the same lab together and become friends and we share the same background. It's, it's yeah, it's funny. Um, but so, yeah, I started probably getting interested in experimenting in science when I was um, really taking an interest in like baking and cooking in uh, that probably started in middle school to high school. Um, in high school, I, I got a job in a restaurant and, you know, it wasn't really the, the glamorous, uh, life that I dreamed it was. It's very hard to work in a restaurant, be a chef. The service industry is unforgiving. And I sort of dreamed of myself as being a celebrity chef on TV and, you know, doing crazy things with food. So I decided not to take that path, but I love just like sort of following recipe, but also like tweaking, experimenting, throwing my own concoction in, throw it in the oven, see what comes out. Very, you know, much the like scientific process of mess around and find out. So then I started thinking that maybe cooking wasn't for me. And I picked up a book on neuroscience and that was just blew me away. Um, so this was in high school. So I started applying to colleges and got into a fantastic uh, neuroscience program at Knox College in Illinois. And that was that was really a great uh, eye-opening experience, just learning about the brain and what we know and how much we don't know. And when I was there, my main focus and project was on uh, looking at how we can use uh, nutrition and supplements to uh, help improve cognitive impairment. So as we start to get some loss of cognition with aging, can we sort of try to stop that from happening with food and supplements. Um, so that was a really interesting project to be a part of. And then after college, I uh, decided to work more on the human and clinical side of things. And I worked with kids with autism doing behavioral therapy for uh, seven years uh, before I decided to go to grad school and take sort of a step back to what I had been doing in college and work in nutrition science and sort of 
tying everything together, the the interest in food, the interest in well-being, neuroscience, health, longevity, really just sort of it fit really nicely in this nutrition science program that Ben and I uh, have been in. And so, yeah, and then that's how we got to where I am today. I'm uh, now a postdoc working in the same lab that I was, do, I did my graduate studies in, and there are a lot of really cool projects that I'm excited to continue doing in this lab. Uh, like you said, working with uh, heart failure and muscle wasting and the gut microbiome. And I feel like we'll maybe explore some of those things a little bit later. So I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> Beauty. Yeah, no. And I think that's the the one thing I want to start with is this like path and understanding or having the audience understand that it's okay to diverge along the way and that there's no issues with doing that because you're going to learn something from that divergence. It's just like in our conversation tonight, I'm sure there's going to be some divergence, but we're going to learn something from that. So Maybe I think both of you, if you can give like one piece of advice to that young person sitting in their maybe grade nine calculus class or grade nine math, I guess, and they just don't know what they want to do. And they have this pressure that they need to do something. I think what, what advice would you give them? Like what would be that kind of one key thing you would say to that person? I would say follow what makes you curious so if you can kind of be introspective uh, a little bit or just maybe sort of feel what you're naturally drawn to, what things you naturally want to know more about or what gets you excited, just follow that. And it's okay if it doesn't fit the path that you thought you were on. The story sometimes develops later. Like as I was going through all of my seemingly random jumps throughout life, they they sort of seem to tie together now more than they did at the time. I just thought, mm, I'm going to try something new and do this. But then when I come back and look at it, there's common threads that intertwine them all. And you can tell that story later when you're, you know, in a job interview or a grad school interview or college interview or whatever you can say, you can look back and retrospectively see how this story can be told in a way that will be intriguing when, you know, at the time, just sort of go with the flow and, and do what you feel like. It'll it'll work out later. If you're passionate about it, though, that's the most important thing. I see Ben agreeing there, and I, I think maybe he has similar advice. Yeah, I adding on to that, I think I've spent a lot of my life, and I would imagine scientists in general would also do this, and we spend a lot of time thinking about what might work out. We don't always do a lot of time trying things. And I think because we are not just one person with one career and we have a lot of hobbies and interests and roundabout things will happen throughout our lives, you don't get to figure out what's going to work as a career, what should be a hobby, what will be your passion, unless you do. And I think... You know, I'm I'm 31 at this moment. And I'm still, you know, realizing like I just have to go try things and see how this can fit in my life. And I I look back and think maybe if I tried a little bit more instead of just thinking, I would get to some answers faster. Not necessarily the right answers, but it's nice to try things and also figure out like they are not the thing for me at all. Like I I was a 
zoo intern for a couple months. And I thought maybe that could be a good path after doing a bachelor's degree. And I did not like it <laughs> in the end. Um, I did not enjoy hosing down poo uh, for a lot of my job. <laughs> and I would have never known unless I tried it. I would have just had yeah. a little bit of a romantic idea of what it could be. But now I really know. Yeah. No, no, that's that's definitely, those are great pieces of advice. And I think it, at the end of the day, those divergences really make us well-rounded. Um, and we come to the end of the tunnel and we're very much, I guess, Renaissance people, you know, maybe, maybe not an expert at every one of the things we've diverged to, but at least we've touched it and it's going to help us in the long run to be well-rounded. And I found the same in my path as well. So it's good to hear that it's a, a common thing for sure. Yeah. And adding to that, like, I think when I tell people that I spent about eight months being a personal chef, they're usually shocked and, and interested. So I, one makes me seem cool, but also that time I spent a lot of, I spent a lot of time in conversation with people who are older adults. Cause that was the population that I was working with. And I didn't have much experience with that population beforehand, but now doing human subjects research, that's a lot of our same population. And so I have that experience to draw on when we're talking about maybe more difficult things when they're dealing with lung cancer or just having simple conversations, knowing the speed, the volume that I should talk at and just knowing how to relate. Awesome. Yeah, no, I want to dive in and learn a little bit more about some of the projects that you guys kind of started off with, or maybe the best way to do it is let's have you both think about a project that you worked on together, you know, and what was that project? And I'm going to ask questions as he kind of unfolds and the answers come out. But I think the biggest thing is how did that project like kind of become or start? How did that start between you two and what was it all about? Yeah, I, I think if we could maybe just sort of set the stage a little bit and uh, warm up a bit to why we do what we do, it might help with a little context. So okay, um, our lab is really focused on muscle imaging. Any way you can look at muscle, we want to do that. And the whole point of that is that muscle, if you think about it as a storage organ like like we think about our fat tissue is storage for energy. Um, muscle is also storage for uh, amino acids. And when we get sick or as we age or anything happens, sometimes our body uh, needs to dip into this storage of amino acids at certain times. And that can be really important. And so having quality muscle and enough muscle to be able to handle time, stressful times in your life is so important. So we're really looking at muscle amount and quality as a marker of, of health and nutrition. So that that's really 
the whole point of what we do. We're trying to assess health by looking at muscle with different imaging methods. And this, there's no established way to do this yet. There's not a set way. Yes, you, you know, open up the muscle imager and you look at muscle this way. We're, this is sort of uncharted waters. This is very new territory. So we're basically exploring what existing ways we have to image inside the body and saying, how can we use this to look at muscle? And we think this is going to be a really powerful clinical tool for doctors, dietitians, um, anybody who wants to look at the health of their patient, talk about like personalized medicine that, you know, this is the direction we're going. Um, so with that sort of stage set, that's just why we're doing everything that we do in lab. And the project that Ben and I worked on together for the most part of our grad career um, really relies on this foundation. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll hand it off to Ben, you know, add add into that, if you will, or introduce maybe the project. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So... Because we are trying to assess muscle wasting or just loss throughout age or muscle loss in disease or sickness, we wanted to have these comparison groups. And like Jevin was saying, it's it's a bit of the Wild West because there is an established method of what technique to use at what time. So our lab is a little unique in that we are experimenting with all these different imaging techniques and trying to compare them. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to see how these imaging techniques might compare to one another in comparisons of muscle loss with aging and also muscle loss in the context of disease. So we did this small pilot study, which if I can remember correctly, was a bit underway once I joined the lab, thanks to uh, Jevin and our our boss, Adam Kuknia, getting things started. So we had 30 people. We had 10 healthy younger people. We had 10 uh, older healthy adults and 10 older adults who had lung cancer. And we did ultrasound measures for each one of those participants. We did biopsies for the older adults. And we also had some MRI measures for all the participants. And so we saw if there's any group differences. We saw if there's just general trends between these imaging methods. And I think that was the first time we were working together pretty frequently in our probably our first foray into more clinical types research with with the goal of having these interventions in the future. I think I was really excited about that because if we could get something like the quality that we get from MRI in ultrasound, that means something's going to be a lot cheaper, more accessible and portable. Like we took our ultrasound on the bus uh, across campus, which we can't do with a multi-million dollar MRI machine. But that that has huge implications for facilities that don't necessarily have uh, millions of dollars to invest in an MRI machine. And I think for the audience, can you just describe the key difference in measurements you get from ultrasound versus MRI, whether that's uh, yourself or Jevin, just so that they understand that what we understand in this room right now, right? We understand that ultrasound is this nice portable instrument that is accessible to more people and especially in third world countries. And people may have heard, you know, ultrasound on your cell phone and going that direction now. So, yeah, maybe just clarify that to the audience so they understand a little bit about MRI and ultrasound briefly. Sure. I can start. And then, Jevin, if you want to add in. So I think MRI is 
pretty cool because you can pretty much image anything at any angle at almost an infinite resolution. You just need money and time, which is also a barrier because sometimes you need results pretty quickly. And also you, like I was saying, you might not have millions of dollars just to get a room ready to have an MRI machine active in there. So you can get these really great, wonderful images of anything in the body, but there's definitely limitations. And even if you have the facilities, it doesn't mean you can easily get participants in there. You may want to image, you know, what we do is muscle. You might want to just get a simple scan of their legs, which isn't usually clinically done, just to check for muscle health. But because it's not usually done, you're probably not going to have that happen. Counter that is ultrasound. So we can do still good quality images. It's very easy for people to learn how to do. Like I was saying, it's portable. And within probably a couple hours, we could teach someone how to image muscle. And so it might not be at the same resolution of MRI, but it's quick and it's fast and it's cheap. And you also don't have to worry about any metallic implants. You don't have to worry about people being claustrophobic. And so you can get good images with a lot less limitations, but you might not be able to go as deep into the body, depending on the, on the type of ultrasound that you have. So we can still get quality measures. They might not be the same skills MRI, but maybe we can get to that point. It's a good way to put it in that perspective, right, of the ease of use. Yeah, I just I think Ben did a great job explaining that. And just to add on, there's there's these fantastic ways to image the body, but like you said, they're they're they take up the size of a room. They're enormous. They cost lots of money. And if we can bring something to the bedside that's cheap and portable, that's great. And to give the, the listeners sort of a picture of what we're seeing on ultrasound. If you imagine you've probably seen in your life or on TV shows, an ultrasound used to look at a baby inside the, the mother's womb. And, and that's exactly what we're doing with muscle. We get a, a black and white picture that is a little grainy, but it's still allowing us to see inside the body. And that in itself is fantastic. And it's just working with sound waves. It's the ultrasound's just throwing out sound waves and picking up what bounces back, and uh, and it, it creates an image from that. Cool. No, and yeah, and then MRI is still going to give you that image um, just looking at proton spins, which maybe I shouldn't use the word proton spins, um, but uh, I guess the better way to say it to some of the audience is looking at water and being able to see how those molecules are I guess, protons within water interact in different tissues and being able to visualize that on a grayscale, which is, like you said, Ben and Jevin, fascinating, right? Um, I'm definitely not an MRI expert. I'm a PET CT guy, radiochemist. So if it's not lit up like a Christmas tree, I'm not happy. Um, <laughs> just be that bright spot and I need to see that glioblastoma in the brain, which you can still do with uh, MRI and contrast agents for sure. So yeah, I guess on that note, talking about these technologies, let's kind of maybe move forward a little and what were the more kind of progressions of that project? So you, you had 30 subjects, you know, 10 young, healthy, 10 older, healthy, and 10 people with lung cancer. And maybe just to clarify, which region were you imaging via MRI and ultrasound? Was it whole body, well, maybe not whole body with ultrasound. So maybe I'm curious to the regions you were looking at. Yeah. A a very commonly looked at region for muscle health is 
uh, the quad muscle. It's very large, just like front of your leg. You've got a really large muscle there called the rectus femoris, and that's part of your quad muscle. And so that was the region we were focusing on with the ultrasound. And then we also got a biopsy from that same region. And then the MRI also imaged that same region. It also got a little bit below and a little bit above. So we, MRI g- gave us a little bit more information, but all th- all three of those methods were, were focusing on the, the quad muscles in the upper thigh. So that was really nice to just compare all the same anatomical location in all these different methods. And Tyler, you were mentioning CT as well. For some of these participants, we were actually able to pull CT scans that were just part of their ordinary care and then analyze okay. some of their paraspinal muscles, the, the muscles in your back, and be able to determine a muscle quality measure out of that. And so that's also pretty useful because, like I said, the scans are already done. It's part of the routine care. And all this information is out there, and it's not necessarily being analyzed. So we can do additional analysis without any extra burden for the participant, which Jevin is a guru at. I love CT. It's my one. That's, that's what I focused on. It's very, very similar to MRI where you've got a, a big expensive machine and it gives you a beautiful image of sometimes the entire body. Uh, the big difference is CT is an X-ray. So it does have some, risk to the patient. The person is getting some some dose of x-rays, which can can cause problems uh, if you have too many of them, as you know. But yeah, they, they both give you just a really great measure of your muscle or anything in the body you want to look at. So now let's get a little kind of deeper into that. You've taken these measures of the quad muscle via MRI, ultrasound. You've taken a biopsy. Ultimately, you have that region in your CT scan as well that was captured. So all of this together, what were kind of A, B, C, D that was calculated from that to compare across the images? And like any imaging technique, there's going to be gaps. There's going to be something you're going to see in MRI that you won't see in ultrasound. And there's going to be something you see in ultrasound that you won't see in CT. So what were the common things seen across those techniques and where were the differences? Yeah. So each of these techniques, well, I was going to say for our study, we had them calculate one measure of muscle quality. Each of these techniques could have multiple ways of assessing muscle quality. And that's one of the issues in the field because not everyone agrees what muscle quality is. And so that's why we just have to test all these methods against one another in these different groups to see how they really suss out. With MRI, we looked, this was our reference technique. So we we used a proton density fat fraction. So we're actually able to get a percent fat in the rectus femoris, the, the quad muscle we were interested in for each participant. And then, so that, that's really nice too. The imaging sequence spits out an image and we can just use some software put a little region of interest on there and get an exact percent fat out of that. For ultrasound, we actually used two different types. So we had B mode, which is the grayscale image that Jevin was talking about earlier. It's, you know, if you're going to scan a baby exactly the same way that way. So we're taking still images of the quad muscles. We again put a little region of interest and get an average grayscale on there with a higher value, usually indicating poor quality. 
And we're thinking that's because there's more fibrous tissue. There might be more fat infiltration. Maybe there's a bit more necrosis in there as well. And then for CT, I could, do you want to take that one, Jevin? Yeah, sure. Um, oh, wait, I didn't talk about shear wave. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, oh, no. talk about shear wave. <laughs> um, so we also use another type of ultrasound. So it's still using sound to hit tissue, bounce back, collect the image. But this time uh, we were using sound waves to move tissue and see how they responded. And with this elasticity measure, we were thinking if something's a higher quality, if we hit it with sound waves, it should bounce back faster. And so we were using sound waves to push tissue this time. And now I think officially with that, Kevin, please take it away. Yeah, I, I think Shearwave, it's really cool. The way I like to think of it is if you drop a rock on a trampoline, you're going to make the trampoline move and vibrate. And that trampoline's kind of like your muscle, right? It's really elastic, it's really springy, and it's going to be- uh, vibrate really fast. As opposed to if you imagine dropping a rock on a pond, you're going to have these very slow waves propagating out. And that's sort of more like what we would see in like fatty tissue. Um, so we can see something that might look a little bit more muscular, a little bit fatty, and then we can get a measure of the quality of that muscle. So yeah, sure, sure wave is really interesting. Getting to CT... The there's there's also a few ways to measure muscle quality in CT, but uh, basically the way CT works is it's shooting an X-ray through your tissue, and whatever is the tissue you're looking at is going to stop the X-rays. So the X-rays shoot from one side, they hit the tissue, some of them get stopped, and then there's a detector on the other side seeing how many X-rays are actually stopped by that tissue, and the more dense of tissue, the more x-rays it's able to stop or attenuate. And so bone attenuates a lot of x-rays, muscle attenuates some, fat attenuates the least amount of x-rays in the body because it's the least dense tissue. So looking at that, we can look at someone's muscle and we can look at how many x-rays roughly it attenuates And that tells us how much fat is in that muscle. So if someone has a muscle that's got a lot of fat in it, it's going to look less dense and block less x-rays than a muscle that doesn't have a lot of fat in it. So that's what we look at with a quality measure of muscle. And of course, since it's a, a beautiful picture, we can also measure the size of the muscle too. Okay, that's great. Totally makes sense. Now... What was kind of the outcome of that? What was seen with the different three groups? What are, was muscle quality weakened with the patients that had lung cancer? Was there a decrease in lung quality or muscle quality there, not lung quality? Obviously, there was a decrease in lung quality. And I'm going to throw this out there, and I don't even know if that's maybe why there was a loss in muscle in the lung cancer patients, but was it because of the treatment regimen? That they were on, so something like cancer cachexia, where muscle wasting was seen. I think it's Jevin smiling because this is a this is a perfect tee up because we have a follow up study which will help uh, answer a lot of this question. But to go to your first little bit, um, our results were showing I think when just comparing methods to begin with that the percent fat from MRI was highly associated with the echo intensity 
of ultrasounds, the B mode. The exact number, I think just a, a Spearman correlation of 0.71, something like that. I mean, we've got the papers out there if you want to really see it. So it's not perfect, but it is a pretty good association, especially if you're going from something as refined as MRI to something that's a bit more rough, uh, like ultrasound. I think that's probably the the biggest takeaway from all this. CT was also highly associated with uh, MRI. That was only within ten folks who were th- who had lung cancer. Obviously, the healthy folks are not going to have a CT scan unless they really have to, since there's high radiation with that. Shear wave was associated with proton density fat fraction, the percent fat, but not as much as echo intensity, which we thought was surprising, since it's a bit more of a sophisticated method. And when we're looking at these measures between groups, the percent fat was higher among both older healthy and older adults with lung cancer when compared to younger healthy adults. And then it became a bit more mixed when we're looking at echo intensity. So echo intensity was lowest among young healthy adults, but it wasn't significantly different among adults with lung cancer. Older, or sorry, younger adults were significantly different for older, healthy adults. So we're still trying to figure out what that might be. Granted, you know, we're, we're comparing groups of 10 people. So some of this might wash out in another subsequent study, which we're doing. And then we're also trying to figure out, like, why is echo intensity different and not having exactly the same patterns as the percent fat? And I think we'll get to this a bit more in our follow-up study where we're going to have 80 people and we'll have 40 of those people who are having lung cancer, but they're on different stages of their treatment. So because we had such a smaller group, Tyler, your question before, we didn't really compare treatment regimens. Now we're hoping to at least a little bit to give us a better explore, exploration of what, how this could be. You know, our participants were systemic treatment where they're able to go home. We're going to keep that going, but maybe we can tease apart specific drugs. And then we're also hoping we can maybe see some muscle quality changes depending on the stage, depending on treatment length. We're hoping to kind of get a different timeline, which we weren't able to get with 10 people in the beginning and with our follow-up study. So we'll have ultrasound, we'll have shear wave, we'll have the echo intensity, we'll have MRI. We'll have CT, we'll have DEXA scans, we'll have bioimpedance spectroscopy. We're still doing that biopsy, and we saw, based on histology, there were no differences between the older healthy groups with the, with our first study, our little pilot study. Now we're going to have 80 biopsies, including young and healthy adults, but we're getting mitochondrial function and likely RNA-seq data to explore what's going on at both this like really small molecular level all the way to a whole person, which will be really cool. And then we're hoping to use all of this to predict health outcomes or able to see electronic health records with the study too. I, I, I think this is going to be a pretty revolutionary study. This has not happened before where we're comparing so many different techniques in this situation. So I can, I can get pretty jazzed about that. No, no kidding. And yeah, I'll just jump in real quick there. Like, I love that thing that you just said about looking at both the macroscopic and the microscopic level. And I think that's the beautiful harmony between all of those technologies and how when someone asks you the question, which one would you pick 
if you only could pick one. And I don't know if I could say we could just pick one because being able to see the whole picture from a wide lens into a narrow lens is so important. And a lot of the techniques we talked about there, you talked about, you know, CT, DEXA, and MRI, you're really going to see the big picture. But then ultrasound, you start to get a little closer, a defined area, RNA-seq, you're going to start to understand at the molecular level what's happening. Biopsies, what's happening at that molecular level with the proteins uh, going on. So I think that's, that's a beautiful thing, and it's a nice synergy to have in a project and that's really, really exciting. Uh, maybe I'll let Jevin kind of expand on that a little. Yeah, and I think that moving forward, this is really this is really what Ben's project is going forward. So we worked on this pilot together, and then Ben is really taking the baton and going forward with it into this next study. So I think he explained it really well, and then I'm kind of branching off into my my CT realm while we, while we still are working together I'll still be helping him with like analyzing the CT scans for this new project and then and then I'll also be doing sort of separate things as well and the outcome of this project what is the goal for these patients like what is the end goal for them how is this going to benefit them in their treatment regimen and how is this going to benefit healthy patients, right? We, I guess we can't just consider patients that are ill, right? We have to consider what is the benefit of healthy patients for this. Right. And I think what is healthy is even in this whole study. We're hypothesizing that the RNA-seq data and the mitochondrial function data are going to start showing changes maybe even within the young healthy group. Maybe there's differences between 20 and 40-year-olds. There's probably going to be some differences between young healthy group and older healthy group. We're thinking those really small molecular changes are going to happen before the imaging data. But we can't do serial biopsies over and over and over at this point, and I don't think we'll get to that either. So that's where the imaging can come in. If there's enough association between the more molecular things and imaging and muscle quality then we can hopefully use and advance imaging more regularly. And so that's that's nice in just the whole aging spectrum, you know, normal healthy aging. And then likewise, you're mentioning, you're mentioning cancer cachexia earlier. So this is this immune chaos that's happening. And so you're losing muscle, you're losing fat, you're dropping, your, your chances of survival are really going down. We're helping to detect these changes a lot more rapidly than what's happening right now in the clinic, which also doesn't have much of a therapy at the same time. So we're hoping both the more molecular side of muscle health and also these imaging techniques can help us pinpoint when these transitions help or start to happen, maybe in muscle wasting, maybe in cancer cachexia, and also how we can track and maybe intervene and see how a recovery process, possibly with amino acids, possibly with more food, stopping like an immune cascade can help alleviate muscle deterioration. But I think, you know, that's in the realm of cancer, but I think there's a lot of different ways, more molecular or imaging-based techniques can help in patient outcome, which is a lot of the heart failure things that Jevons are working on. 
yeah, just to tag on what Ben said, um, might be helpful to talk about too, like what what we're trying to improve upon. So the currently dietitians and clinicians assess assess muscle and nutritional health with physical and visual indications. So they might palpate the patient, they might visually inspect for signs of muscle loss or hollowed out portions of the body, like maybe looking around the eye socket or the temple for like hollowed out depressions. And and that's that's the way we've done this uh, since the 80s. And we're hoping to provide some more tools for clinicians to have a, a more objective measure of muscle health. So somebody can come into the hospital and we can say your muscle is a number, you know, we can put a number on it to say you have this thickness of muscle or you have this quality of muscle. And that can, like Ben say, really inform treatment to say, we are noticing severe muscle wasting. We need to get this person on some sort of uh, nutritional regimen right away. Or like Ben said, track over time to see when a person starts to lose muscle. If we've been following them for a while, that's the best, right? We can, we know what's normal for that person. And as soon as they start to lose muscle, we can intervene. It's a little trickier when someone comes in to the hospital and we haven't seen them before and we're trying to compare them to, we say, for someone of your age and size, you should have this amount of muscle, but everybody's different. So like it's a lot trickier. Um, and that's where we start to implement maybe a cut point and we say, you're, you're above the cut point, so you're good. You're below the cut point, so we need to do something. But cut points are, are rough and don't apply to every single person. No, that makes sense, right? The importance of being able to use these imaging techniques on the preventative front, but also sadly on the front where I guess there's no better way to say it. It's too late or it's advanced to look at a disease. And even if we're at that point, I I would hope we can still mitigate further, you know, advancement. You know, there's always uh, something there's hopefully something we can do at that point to to prevent the person from losing more muscle. But you're right, absolutely right. We want to, we don't want it to get to that point. We want to maintain the muscle that they have. And in these imaging techniques, uh, ultrasound, DEXA, MRI, CT, uh, with all of these different imaging technologies, where do you see personalized medicine fits within that? Because I know we talked a little bit about personalized medicine early on, and you know, when we think about personalized medicine, we think it from the perspective of the right drug for the right person at the right time. But can we look at it from a perspective of the right imaging technology for the right person at the right time? That's a really good question. And, and I would say, (laughs) absolutely, yes. Um, And you can think of personalized medicine from two sides with this. I think you can think of it as like you're saying the right imaging technique for the right person or maybe more practically the right imaging technique for the right clinician in the right location at the right time because somebody who doesn't have access to a a hospital with an MRI isn't going to be able to use that. They're going to have to use something portable like um, like uh, BIS or ultrasound, uh, bioimpedance or ultrasound. But you can also think about it as personalized medicine, like sort of what we were just talking about previously as tailoring the 
nutrition supplementation to the patient where we're not working off of a super rough measure such as BMI, 1500 to 2000 calorie diet, and these rough sort of population-based measures were saying this person for this body type and this amount of muscle needs this amount of protein and carbohydrates and fat to maintain or gain the body weight that they have. And this this becomes really important too as we have people that are coming in that have different body compositions. And it's maybe really hard to tell if you have somebody who has more uh, adipose tissue, it can be hard to tell how much muscle wasting they have because it can be masked by other body compositions. So if we can get imaging, we can get under the surface and see how much muscle and more accurate nutrition health, we can actually diagnose people better and help them sooner. Like Ben was saying, we can, we can get be accurate and more on the ball at diagnosing wasting. If you're looking at, at BMI or weight, that can be masked by somebody having weight changes, fluid changes, maybe they have swelling, but there's actually muscle wasting going on under the surface that you can't tell if you're just using a scale. That's sort of the, the other aspect of personalized medicine is we're getting a better idea of what people are made out of. And that's, you know, that's very personal in itself. <laughs> No, that's that's great. That's a great response to that that question. And Ben, maybe you have something to add to that as well. Yeah, I feel like Jevin covered that pretty well. And I would say, if I had to wager, like wager on just the f- next twenty years of like personalized medicine with imaging, it, it would probably come down to access, like Jevin was talking about. Um, and hopefully, that will change. It would be really nice to have somehow small scale MRIs or small scale low dose radiation CTs to get really high resolution images. And I think that's work underway at the moment, but probably not in really going to be utilized clinically large scale in the next 10 to 20 years. I'm also thinking, oh, I had a really good thought and I am totally spacing out (laughs) on it right now. I think, I think it would be repeated measures for the same person. Uh, over time, and I think the image that the imaging technique that could you be used for specific muscles at this point with the lowest cost and the lowest risk would be ultrasound. And because it's so easy to use, um, you know the the annoying thing about it is that you have gel on you, and then you wipe the gel off, and that's really about it. Um, so that's pretty, that's pretty great. And with your yearly checkup, if you could have an ultrasound of your leg, or if we discover in some of our analyses, you know, our, our back muscles or something that we really want to look at, then I think that would be nice to have in your chart to track your specific values of muscle quality or, or, uh, area. I think there's also, because we're still figuring out exactly what all these techniques are measuring on a really molecular level. There might be appropriate times that we use a percent fat if we're concerned about someone having a really poor diet that is leading to higher fatty infiltration in their muscle. Percent fat might be great at that, but it might miss the more water-based techniques that maybe bioimpedance spectroscopy could detect for swelling or echo density might be a bit more sensitive to or CT. 
I think it'd also be so cool if you could get to the point where we could use MRI spectroscopy to detect the actual species of lipids and other like molecular things in there pretty readily, but it's really hard to do. And you also don't necessarily get images out of it, but boy, that would be a game changer if you could just get quick and simple imaging based on that. Yeah, no, that would be definitely a game changer. And, you know, I guess just to kind of fill the audience in too, right? Syntica is on this kind of forefront of all these different technologies that we talked about, you know, DEXA, CTMR, ultrasound, and that's what we try to do here every day, right? We're trying to connect these dots and it's it's great to see that it's actually happening. You know, that's what's the beauty about speaking to both of you tonight, that when we talk to our customers, scientists, researchers, our friends, our collaborators on our end at Syntica, we're trying to connect the dots with all these technologies and trying to pinpoint when to use one over the other, when to connect the data from one to the other and find the harmony between them. But then also, like you said, Ben, we need to sometimes cut back and find one that could work in a particular scenario where resources are limited. I can't coin this term at all, but uh, there was a, a scientist that has all left us now, Sam Gambier. And I don't know if you guys knew Sam or his work. Uh, Sam was at Stanford. He was a pretty big imaging guru. And uh, he gave a lot of talks in the imaging world. And one of the talks he gave one day, and I'll, this really statement held to me, and you kind of touched on a little, Ben, was, you know, you walk into your shower in the morning and you get scanned every day. And that's the forefront of preventative medicine and being able to jump ahead of the curve. And like you said, whether that's your yearly checkup, that a scan or something to look at muscle quality as part of that can really reduce the burden long-term on a healthcare system, right? And I think that's hugely important because we look at the upfront cost of maybe doing that scan every year for every patient across the world. But if we pick up on something much earlier, we can hopefully treat it a lot easier. And so I think that's hugely important when we consider using these technologies as one to do stuff like diagnose um, muscle quality. And uh, I, I don't want to forget about this heart failure idea, Jevin. So maybe just bring that in and We'll try to keep pushing this forward a little, the conversation, but I want to hear your thoughts on this heart failure kind of division that you're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. So the project that I'm now embarking on is, and and we also did sort of a, a little more than a pilot, but we did a preliminary project that's now leading to this. And we found that, let me back up and say that you if you have heart failure and you're getting a heart transplant, which ultimately is where a lot of advanced heart failure patients go, it, it's one of the best ways we have right now to uh, treat advanced heart failure is getting a transplant. Thousands of transplants happen every year and all of those patients get CT scans. Wow, this is fantastic. We have this amazing method that they have to get for medical reasons. So we're not giving them any additional radiation. It's already there. The data's there. And it's such a wealth of data. So they have existing 
chest CT scans, just of the chest. So that's what we're working with. And our preliminary research showed that if you look at the pectoral muscles in the chest, that can really well predict how well are they're going to do after transplant. And so we are, we're sort of exploring, we're working with a chest CT. So we're limited to what muscle groups we have access to. So we were really sort of prying what kind of data could we get out of this that is going to be prognostic and help clinical treatment. So ended up being the pectoral muscles and also the paraspinal muscles, as Ben mentioned in our other study. So moving forward, this was this pre- previous one was a retrospective. We had a bunch of CT scans of heart transplant patients. We want to take that a step further now and prospectively enroll people as they're being evaluated for a heart transplant, for other cardiac surgeries. Uh, we want to get them in our study and... Currently, the UW does about 50 to 70 heart transplants a year. So that's, it's a fantastic, um, one of the, one of the major heart transplant centers in the U.S. So really lucky to be at this location. And so as people come in, they're being evaluated for a heart transplant. We're going to enroll them in our study and we're going to give them sort of like our other study Ben was talking about, uh, just a barrage of different muscle measures. We're, we're getting uh, the CT from their normal exam. We're going to give them an ultrasound. We can't do bioimpedance, unfortunately, because a lot of them have um, a uh, pacemaker or heart device that can't have you know those electrical signals going through their body. But we're, we're getting a frailty assessment. So we're going to have like a functional test of how well are their muscles working in which is a fantastic part to tie into this it's it's really cool for us to actually put them under some tests and see i mean they're very simple not strenuous tests but we're going to actually be able to compare uh, the functional measures of their muscle to the imaging measures of their muscle to blood parameters so we're gonna we're gonna look at some circulating biomarkers the other piece we're tying in which is new to me is we're going to do a microbiome analysis. So we're going to collect fecal samples and there's sort of a mysterious connection um, between um, the microbiome and muscle wasting and heart failure. And this is a new area for me, so I, I can't go too in depth on it, but uh, I'm very excited to see how this gut microbiome connects uh, muscle wasting and heart failure and how these what's the interaction between all of these so so that's all before the transplant right we're going to see the people again at their transplant we're going to get these measures again and then we're going to follow up with them after the transplant to get these measures one more time and see how they all change from pre-transplant to transplant to post-transplant and so this is going to be a really nice way to look at at muscle wasting uh, functional tests serum, uh, blood markers, heart failure markers, and see how they change over time. And then we're going to look at the associations between all of these, see where they're connected, and then see how they can be used clinically to improve patient care. So can we track someone's CT over time and use that to determine, is there a point we need to intervene? Are they losing muscle at a detrimental rate or at a detrimental time in their treatment? 
It, does that relate to their functional tests? Does that relate to their ultrasound, uh, et cetera? So we have all these puzzle pieces that are going to fit together that I'm really excited to see uh, what we tease out of this data. Oh, that sounds awesome. Just to put in context for both of you, I, I did a little bit of heart failure research. Uh, we were using PET CT to monitor heart failure, and I was going after uh, something called the growth hormone secretagogue receptor, so the ghrelin receptor. Uh, and that was a, a focus of mine and from different angles. And it's it's nice to see that there are so many different angles to monitor heart failure right now with the gut microbiome. And I was looking at it from different perspectives of heart transplants as well, but more from a signaling mechanism and targeting those signaling proteins. Uh, but it's cool to see the different connections. And that allows more doors to open to diagnose patients different ways. And I think that's hugely important, right? We want to have a toolbox of 10,000 ways we can diagnose a patient because sometimes that toolbox, we won't be able to utilize those 10,000 different items. We might be able to only use five of them on a given day, depending on the scenario we find ourselves in. So it's good to hear that we're expanding different ways to monitor patient health and from different perspectives. It's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a, a promising new direction. This this frailty component, the the functional, how well does somebody move, was recently found to be the number one predictor of of heart transplant success. And uh, unfortunately, these frailty tests are really challenging to do because um, there's been some reallocation of of hearts for heart transplant. Now they're giving them to the, um, the, the sickest patients, the people that are, are at the most risk, which is, it's fantastic. But that means they're often in a critical moment when they get their transplant that we can't be asking them to like walk upstairs, walk down a hallway. We can't be, you know, getting these functional tests from them if they are, uh, if they are that sick. Ultimately, this has improved uh, heart transplant survival. So this is really a good direction we're going, but um, we're not able to get these frailty measurements. And we're hoping that computed tomography can step in and say, okay, we can't um, make somebody do a functional test, but we have this beautiful image of their muscle. Can that substitute in for this uh, functional assessment and, and, be a nice proxy when, when somebody's too sick to, to, um, do these like exercise tests. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, no, it sounds like you guys have worked really well together on projects, projects on your own. And those projects kind of seem to keep fostering into new avenues and diverging, which is amazing. And throughout this whole process, I got to ask, you know, you guys are friends, right? Um, but you're also colleagues in the lab. And how do you make sure those lines aren't blurred so you don't, you know, diminish the friendship or diminish the professional relationship you see in the lab? And how do you keep those lines from crossing? And also, you know, that whole thing of how do you not insult each other when you disagree on a certain thing in the lab uh, and you don't want to hurt the friendship? That's a great question. Um, 
and, and yeah, Ben and I are great friends and we, we do many activities together outside of the lab. We, uh, play Magic the Gathering card game together. We just generally hang out socially. Um, Ben, uh, launched a podcast business, uh, and I'll let him talk more about that, but he asked me to help out with that. So we're working together in colleagues in more than one area and friends and different things. And, um, yeah, what would you say, Ben? What, I mean, I think we do a really nice job of, of balancing it and we don't always agree. Yeah. I think fundamentally both you and I are not people we don't have necessarily a competitive spirit, I think, to get ahead at the cost of others. So I think, I mean, our whole lab is like that, which is which is probably why we've been able to do so many different projects in a small amount of time, I think, too. Um, we take care of each other. We've got to step in when we can. I think it's pro- it probably goes down to respect as well. Just, you know, I think we are there to help one another and try to communicate and say, yeah, this is my perspective on this issue. And it doesn't mean Jevin, you're stupid. I don't think we've ever attacked each other, like based on our personalities or traits or anything, you know, we've probably made fun of ourselves more than each other than anything else. But I think it is a good, honest communication and it probably helps that we're a little bit older since we're doing our PhD where our ideas are for science which are different than maybe working on the podcast together which is also different than maybe building magic the gathering or different than the events we're going to do and i think we've always been able to state our own opinions which is different than what the evidence might say for business literature and still finesse and i think we also think of when's the right time to bring up issues. Do you, we ask like, do you have time to talk right now? Or I would like to talk about this. Are you okay to talk about this right now? Um, So I think we've always been mindful to make sure we're at a place where we can receive and give feedback in good constructive ways without attacking one another personally. Yeah, no, that's definitely a great answer. Right. And I think, that's the challenge, not maybe just with friends, but any kind of collaborative effort that you guys have gone through, right? Being able to foster collaboration, but still have, I guess, the guts to speak your mind when you don't agree with something. Uh, and I'm sure we have all found ourselves in that position. Um, where maybe you didn't agree with your supervisor or you didn't agree with another collaborator, you didn't agree with a clinician about something and not speaking up can be detrimental to the project. Or am I wrong about that? Yeah, I think our our lab, I mean, one of the reasons I really like it too is the power structure is pretty flat. Adam Kugnia, our boss, will joke around with us and is also so respectful. We're, and maybe this is part of it, like we're really not that far off in age. I think Adam is eight years older than me and maybe seven older than you, Jevin. And so that probably helps it seem a bit more 
I don't know what the the adjective word uh, uh, version of camaraderie is, but adjective version of that. I yeah, I, I just think like the power dynamics are so small in our lab. That's really helped us. And I think for the science, it's probably best to speak up. And like, of course, we have collaborators that we are more advanced than anyone in the lab since we're a relatively new lab and we have a bit of a different approach. We joke a lot in our labs and we probably wouldn't do that with everyone that we collaborate with. And it's taken time to get to that point, I think, with everyone in the lab. And I think you still got to be artful if you're not entirely sure about a colleague and you do have some criticism, hopefully, you know, they can, if we're especially using literature to back up our opinions and still say like, this is what we're, this is what we're thinking. And you know, this is why we might disagree. That helps to combat egos. I think also me personally, I think I've just been lucky to not deal with many people who have egos. I think that's one of the nice things about UW-Madison, that it's it's really relaxed, and you'll get people who are more aggravated by you trying to be formal than just being really casual. That's my perspective, and maybe, Jeff, and you got a little different one. I, I absolutely agree. I think the it goes a long way to foster an environment where people feel like they can speak up without judgment and contribute and feel like they're heard. And I think um, Adam does a fantastic job of that. You do a great job of that, Ben. But it it takes work, right? You need to have people feel comfortable to speak their mind. And and that's not something to take for granted. And, and it's something that you need to be cognizant about. And... Yeah, just trying to remove your ego as much, like you said, Ben, just trying to not have an ego uh, when you're in intense conversations. And, you know, sometimes you might want to have one, but but you, you can advocate for something you care about without having it be a personal slight against you, your own psyche, if people disagree with you. So, so try to, yeah, separating your ego and your your work i think you're going to get further you're going to have better collaborations and we've certainly found that when you collaborate with people you get more done and you get further awesome awesome i I think i have a couple more questions about building out a research project and i think it's just a couple simple questions or what in my mind is simple questions but then sometimes they're more complex at uh a micro level, no pun intended. But what do you find the best way to plan a project and be able to stay on track with that project, even though you have to adapt so much? So you come into a project, you have to come up with a plan. Or as we all know, the dreadful research proposal that you have to write. And you always try to come up with those checkpoints. Well, I'm going to check this data at this day and I'm going to do this on this day. Nothing's ever going to work out the way you planned. But what's the best way to start it? And how do you adapt as you go along? That's a great question. And maybe it 
depends on project to project. There's a lot of factors like funding and people, but let's, I, I'm trying to think if we can boil it down. I think it's really important to have somebody be the point person. So whenever we have a new project come up and it's usually an idea of somebody's that they say, Hey, this is a cool idea. I want to pursue it. They become the, the point person for that project and, and the driving force behind it. So if, if you're passionate about the research project, you should be the person that's in charge of making sure it happens. Right. And, and that person then will take charge of trying to schedule some deadlines uh, organize meetings with people, uh, look for funding if they need to, to fill out the dreaded um, internal review board application to get uh, ethical permission, to, <laughs> a lot of paperwork <laughs> to do the project. So I, I think that's been really helpful for us just to delegate and organize a personal structure and and then that that point person can say hey i need help on this can you you know do this side project for me and and report back and and sort of delegate out from there but really sort of taking it control of of the um the helm of the project and making sure it actually happens because so often if you yeah the we've seen time and time again where we have an idea the ball gets dropped nobody really falls through on it um but having that one person that makes sure that it gets done is is really crucial yeah and i don't think that person always has to be the pi right right i think it can be someone different other than the pi and that ultimately brings in a different perspective can i add yeah, go. I was just, I saw, I, I saw you coming in there and I was like, okay, yeah. what's. Jevin, I'm so glad you took the question first because I was like, oh, I feel like you should have a really good answer to this. I think it's really helpful to just state that innovation is usually just adding 5% to an already existing idea. And that's, that's great. You know, you don't have, to, you know, with our projects, it's like, you know, this this revamped pilot study that I was mentioning before, it's adding more people and adding more techniques. And that, I mean, when you boil it down, like that's that's it. I think for for me, so that makes trying to do a new innovative project less daunting to start with. But if it's something specific like a grant deadline or you know putting in something for the institutional review board, I, I like to check out what's required and get probably anxious and overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that I have to do and just sit in that for a little bit, let that kind of pass. And then I know my end goal and I'm going to start working backwards from that. So I'm going to start chunking it into smaller projects to make it seem more reliable when we are planning this follow-up to our pilot study, I it was really helpful for me to start imagining running through a study visit and what's going to pop up for a participant, what's going to pop up for some of our collaborators. And that's led to, you, you know, even yesterday in our lab meeting, like a conversation we've never had before because I'm visualizing moving this biopsy sample into a container and trying to split it. Cause that's going to, it's going to have to happen, but I never thought about that before. Um, but I think I do try to take 
the big end goal, chunk it down into smaller projects, envision those little bits, and then that can usually get me workable goals. And if I start knocking out those tasks, then usually that anxiousness starts to go away because I'm actually making progress. Most of the time, I can still be overwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we're we're always going to be overwhelmed uh, in those moments, but uh, that's that's a good way to look at it. You know, work backwards and take it take it into smaller pieces, as you would a biopsy, which sounds like it's going to be very interesting to do. You know, I I don't want to, you know, drag on too much about that kind of area because you guys did a really good job at answering those types of questions. And I think I want to move towards the, so what is Jevin and Ben doing now, both on the research side? Like what is, we heard a little bit about the heart failure stuff, right? So what are the projects kind of happening now? What is kind of the timeline for those end goals of those projects? Um, and then maybe also on the personal side, what's happening in the personal side of things? What are you guys doing outside of that research bubble? Jevin, would you mind starting? I'm going to send a quick test text message to a friend to just give her a little update. But then, yeah, you bet. It, it's important to let our friends know how we're doing. <laughs> um, yeah, it is so. definitely important. <laughs> um, yeah, this so. This heart failure project is probably going to be three to four years, and that will be my main focus in lab. I'm still really interested in also refining how do we improve CT because it's a really new area, and I am currently writing a paper on how to adjust for the use of contrast. Can we correct it out? And uh, I think we can. And then I just wrote a review paper on all the different ways that CT can get thrown off and like the protocol is, is sensitive, can affect our muscle measures depending on how we tune those dials. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can refine CT to make it a better measure of muscle and more standardized. So that's something that I care about and I'm going to keep doing as I'm doing this heart failure project as well. But CT is sort of moving into this really cool realm of... Uh, using AI to automatically segment all the parts of the body. So so you run a full body CT and if you can imagine it, all the muscles in red, all the fats in yellow, all the bones are separate, all the organs are individual colors and, and then you can use those as data. So that's really the way that, that CT is heading in the future and it's very exciting new realm and, and I hope to contribute more to that as well. And then on the personal side, I'm looking into doing a little bit of consulting. There's a group on campus called uh, WeSolve that lets uh, students and postdocs get experience doing um, business consulting. So trying out a little bit of that, seeing how it goes, and sort of like we had talked about, just trying things out and seeing if it works for you. You, you don't know till you try it, right? And then... Uh, like we talked about too, we also like, uh, we both like Magic the Gathering. I uh, write about Magic, the card game for a website called edhrec.com. And I, it's sort of just a, a fun little side hobby. So I'm planning on continuing to do that as sort of uh, a little bit of fun work as I do everything else. So is that kind of the 
do you see where, you know what, before I ask that question, I'll, I'll, I'll let Ben answer the first one. Cause I don't want to jump the gun here. Cause I got a good final kind of question for both of you. Well, at least in my mind, it's a good question. We'll, we'll see how it comes out, but, uh, um, that's really cool that, and I think that touches a little on and Ben will do the same is that everyone sometimes sees us in our bubble in our science bubble, but they don't realize we have these other talents and we have these other passions that we want to pursue, uh, beyond science, right? Our project is our baby in the lab and it becomes so involved and wrapped up in our life and people only see that side of us. And it's good to tell the audience that we have another side and that we like to do these things outside of research, but ultimately it helps us in our research because it makes us think less about something for a brief moment to have a better fresh mind when we tackle it the next day. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. So Ben, what are you, uh, what are you up to on the research grounds and the personal life currently? Yeah. So research grounds, I think another way, this is actually what I wanted to talk about. I think when I forgot <laughs> what I wanted to mention. Um, so both Jeb and I have done a little bit of work using correction factors to try to make some of these imaging methods a bit better. Uh, I'm working on a project right now that is trying to figure out the best way to make the ultrasound echo intensity, that grayscale value, as close to the percent fat on MRI as possible. So we've got our final round of analysis done. Tomorrow I'm hoping to dip into the code to run some numbers and, and get all of our results. But it's pretty exciting. You know, my my dream there is that we can get that portable, accessible method of imaging ultrasound almost as close uh, to MRI as possible. So we can just have high, great resolution, uh, really accurate measures that are available, much easier for everyone. I'm also going on a trip uh, to New Zealand in less than two weeks. I'll be working remotely, analyzing that data and writing it into a manuscript for two months abroad, which is something I've never done, which is exciting. Uh, trying out that digital nomad lifestyle and hoping to see as many mountains as I possibly can. I think also like future stuff too. Um, you know, we we both graduated. I I don't see a postdoc necessarily in my future, and I'm I'm interested in exploring more career options. I also, as we've kind of mentioned a little bit, I I run a business on the side called Deeper Than Data, which is 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 about podcasting and I would say largely science communication at this point. And we've interviewed scientists from all different backgrounds about their success, successes, failures, and journeys. And I think I will be able to interview some scientists in New Zealand live, which if I had to ask myself even two years ago, would you ever go to a foreign country to interview scientists about their their personal life? I would have, I would have, I, I don't know what I exactly would have done. Maybe laughed, cried out of joy. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I think, uh, back to Jevin's point, a lot of doing and trying and we'll see. I think that a lot of the world is, uh, ahead of us. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I said that to myself. I think, I don't know. I've been with Syntica now for a year and Ben, I said the same thing. Would I in a million years ever be interviewing scientists 
to put on a podcast platform and I probably would have laughed at myself as well. And uh, I'm glad I did it. You know, I've said to myself for a while, I would love to do something like this. And I'm, I'm glad I did it because one, it's something new and interesting. And two, I just get to learn the coolest stories from people, right? And hear about research and like we heard today, connecting technologies and putting the pieces together and understanding when to pick the right technology, when to use it, how it's going to advance medicine, how it's going to help people in their everyday lives. And I think that's just fascinating. And like I said earlier, you know, that's kind of our message at Syntica and to see it living and breathing is a beautiful thing, right? Because we try to promote it and we try to foster that as part of our message with everyone we talk to, but the message doesn't always get across. Sometimes it's stopped dead in its tracks where somebody says, well, I don't have the budget. I have to buy one and I'm just going to do that for the next 30 years. And I don't have this and it's, it's difficult, right? But to be able to have people listen and hear the importance of all of this is really what's going to hopefully create harmony uh, and have people understand the importance of connecting the dots. So it's kind of cool. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Budgets and it's, it's a constraint. It's a really tough thing. Right. And, um, and it's hard. I wish I could give everyone an MRI and a DEXA and a CT, uh, right? That would be great. We would want that in everyone's hands, in their kitchens even. Okay, maybe not their kitchens, but you know, you know, we want we want that in everyone's hands. I think I'll I'll leave it with one last thing. And you kind of said it, Ben, but and you've kind of said it, Jevin. But what does if you had to take a guess, and maybe the answer is you don't know. What does the future hold in the next year for both of you? Like, what does it entail? And maybe we'll start with Jevin, not just me picking, because I think he's the first on my screen. In the next year, I I think that's a lot easier to say it than the next five years or 10 years, because I really don't know about that. <laughs> I That's why, see, I kept it simple. I was yeah. going to say the next five, but that's too cliche. So we kept it the next year. Like, what is, what's that, what's that look like for you? Yeah, I mean, this next year is really just me embarking on this new heart project. And that's going to be a a huge undertaking and collaboration with does probably dozens of people. Um, And so that's going to be a really big one for me. But I'm sort of hoping to see also what other things I can squeeze into my life now that I'm done with grad school. Like I said, I'm, I'm testing out consulting. I'm writing about a fun card game and I'm, I'm sort of curious how these pieces are going to fit in my life now that I'm out of grad school and breathing a little bit easier and kind of curious what, other things I can fit in. Like I would love to do more gardening and reading for pleasure and things that I haven't felt like I have the time to do in the last five years. Um, so it's, I, that's sort of a non-answer. It's like, I'm going to see, and, but, uh, some, some, some hope of, of, of new things. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. 
I know we touched a little, Ben, like the you have the trip coming up and the podcast kind of rounding out. But do you feel the same way? Is there something there in the next year that will fit in? To be completely honest, I'm going to take your original possible answer of I don't know. Um, I think the trip is coming at a great time so I can do a bit of soul searching for what can happen next. I think I've got some ideas of what I would like to have more in my life. And now I think it's trying to figure that out a bit more. I really love being able to communicate with scientists and tell their stories. I, I feel so honored that I'm able to capture moments with the podcast and the help with, you know, of of Jevin doing it too, capturing moments where scientists are saying like, I didn't get this grant and I broke down in my car crying because of it, or I was rejected from graduate school. And so it's just, it's, science is is a hard subject because we fail a lot and it's really nice to be one of the people who's sharing that with others to make sure that they're not alone and hopefully that's just being honest about the profession but also teaching a bit of resiliency um i've also always loved making people laugh and so i'm i've been putting my name in to do stand-up comedy the past couple weeks and i hope uh maybe even to do that in new zealand we'll find out um, and I think the the job hunt will happen too. Um, and if there's a magical way to combine all of this, you let me know, Tyler. But I, I think it's uh, it'll it'll yeah something something interesting will happen in the next year. Um, yeah. But I also at the same time as it's a bit you know, anxiety provoking, I realize like the privilege I have to be at this moment to be able to question that, um, and you know appreciate everything that's happened to get me to this point. No, that's awesome. It was great having you both kind of talk about your journey tonight. We got into the technical stuff, which was good, right? We got to share to the audience the importance of what we did to get where we are today and where it's going. But we really got to express kind of our journey. Um, Maybe we didn't talk about the hardships today a little bit, a little bit about the hardships and they exist, but we focused a lot on the positives kind of throughout the journey and how the divergence really well-rounded us as individuals. And we can clearly see that with yourself, Ben and Jevin, that there's a lot of great things to come. And that's super, super exciting for both of you. It's exciting to hear from the standpoint where I'm in on a industry side And hopefully that just keeps opening doors and we keep rolling with that. But yeah, thanks for having, thanks for being on tonight. It's great. It's great chatting with both of you. I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It was really, really great talking to you, Tyler. Yeah. Thanks, Tyler. That was one exciting podcast. What a great story that Ben and Jevin told. We got to learn the insights into how they do their research and their nonlinear path, how they got there. Thank you all for listening. And I'm really excited for episode three of Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast. Thanks again from your host, Dr. Tyler Long.